I'm so thrilled to tell you about Luna Lux Botanicals. Luna Lux Botanicals is an all-natural, woman-owned bath and body shop that offers magical products derived from nature. I was lucky enough to be sent some of these beautiful products, the new moon bath salts and the full moon bath salts. And let me just say, I get sent a lot of stuff. It's one of the blessings of having a podcast. I have a closet now filled with gifts and samples from all kinds of magical places. Believe me when I say that these Lunalux Botanicals bath salts are some of the favorite and most used things that I have ever been sent. I absolutely adore them and they make me feel truly relaxed and luxurious and lunar. So I'm really excited to announce that this Saturday, November 28th, Luna Lux Botanicals will be launching their brand new Crystal Body Scrub Collection. This collection contains scrubs made from raw sea salts, organic cold-pressed oils, perfectly paired fragrances blended with essential oils, and real crystals. Each batch is carefully handcrafted with love and intention by its creator, Cass Hayes, using only the purest ingredients. So if you're ready to add some magic to your self-care, go on ahead and visit Luna Lux Botanicals. That's L-U-N-A-L-U-X botanicals.com and use code WHICHWAVE for 15% off your first order. That's lunaluxbotanicals.com and code WHICHWAVE gets you 15% off your first order. Thank you, Luna Lux. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Well, it's Thanksgiving week and believe me, I know how complicated this holiday is for those of us who live in the U.S. And I'm speaking both from an individual perspective and a national perspective. Personally, I am not seeing any family this year out of an abundance of caution since COVID cases are on the rise again, and I haven't seen my sweet, wonderful parents who live in Arizona since February. We're missing each other like crazy, but we've chosen not to visit each other because We care about each other's health, and we care about your health. And I know many of you are in the same boat and are also missing loved ones of yours too. 
And then, of course, there's the historical context of this holiday, which purports to be a celebration of pilgrims and natives coming together in harmony, which sounds lovely in theory, but which we now know wasn't quite so lovely in practice. I probably don't have to remind you about how white settlers came over from Europe and slaughtered and stole land from the indigenous people who lived here. And those communities are still struggling today in many regards due to poverty and oppression and now some of the highest rates of COVID in the entire country. And P.S., if you're politically engaged like I am and you're grateful as I am that Arizona went blue in the election this year, well, we have Native people to thank for that as the Navajo and Hopi nations organized and turned out the vote astronomically to tip the scales. These are all reasons why this year I've chosen to donate to the Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund, which you can find at NavajoHopiSolidarity.org. Again, that's NavajoHopiSolidarity.org. I sincerely encourage you to join me in doing so if you're able to. Now, I'm aware that there are people who now refuse to celebrate Thanksgiving at all, and I understand and respect that choice. For me, I choose to still celebrate the holiday, albeit with awareness of its colonialist history and present implications. But at the same time, to tap into the loving spirit and good intentions that this holiday engenders as well. I believe it is possible to hold two truths in our hearts at the same time. And I've said it many times before, but gratitude is some of the most powerful magic we have. So I believe that saying thank you and connecting with those we care about, albeit perhaps at a distance this year, is truly sacred work. I feel thankful for so many things which I'll be honoring over the holiday. But one in particular is all of the amazing people that I have in my life. My family, my friends, my community, all of you listening. And one of those people that I'm grateful for is my guest today, Susan L. Aberth my dear friend and personal hero who is a professor of art history and who specializes in surrealism and the occult. She also happens to be one of the world's experts on another one of my personal heroes, the bewitching, wildly talented artist, Leonora Carrington. Now, Leonora was also a tremendous writer, and I highly recommend you read her novella, The Hearing Trumpet, and her short stories. But it's these opening words of her visionary memoir, Down Below, which have been ringing in my head and my heart this year. She begins the book by acknowledging, quote, The necessity that others be with me, 
that we may feed each other with our knowledge and thus constitute the whole. Unquote. So this year, I'm giving thanks for beloved people in my life like Susan Aberth, who feeds me continuously with her deep knowledge and magical friendship. The conversation you're about to hear between us is one of my favorites of all time. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches. Kate writes, Hi, Pam. In late May, I was served an extra big helping of 2020 when I took a turn too fast on my evening bicycle ride and wiped out. I'm a 42-year-old mom of three kids, ages 9, 7, and 5, so this injury was inconvenient to say the least. This summer, I had two surgeries to fix the massive damage I had done to my knee. My life became my knee, and to a lesser extent, my ankle, which was badly sprained as well. My poor dear husband had to do everything, not only for the kids, but also for me. Fast forward to now, I'm walking again off crutches, which I was on for almost three months, out of a wheelchair, down to one physical therapy session a week. I'm generally doing great compared to where I was before. My knee will never be the same again, which is a little depressing, but I'm so impressed with myself for what I'm capable of dealing with. I was truly tested this summer, and overcoming this injury has given me a feeling of resilience like I've never felt before. I have many people to be thankful for. My amazingly patient and kind husband, my surgeon, my physical therapist, my kids, and even myself for hanging in there. There is someone else I'm grateful for also. The person whose tissue now has a new home in my knee. I know the person must have been fairly young when they passed away, and it breaks my heart. I am able to write to this person's family via the hospital to protect anonymity, which I plan to do. I think this season of thanks is the perfect time to write this letter. Is there something I can do to get myself in the right headspace to write it? What they gave to me unknowingly has been so monumental in my life. I can walk again because of them and play with my children. I also have many questions about having a piece of someone else's body inside me. I'd like to make it my own, and as I heal, my body will vascularize and integrate it, but I also never want to forget that I have a piece of a very selfless person in me that I am now the guardian of. I'd appreciate any advice you have on this situation I found myself in because of those two crazy seconds that happened this spring. Thank you so much for your wonderful show, which has also been inspiring therapy for me this summer and fall, and has helped me crunch through some pretty painful knee bends and PT exercises. Cheers. Oh, Kate, what a harrowing and ultimately hopeful tale. 
I'm so sorry that you had to go through all that, but I'm also so happy that you're healing and that you are surrounded by so much support. You're right. That is a lot to be grateful for. So here's what I think. Doing a gratitude ritual is a magnificent way to say thank you to the individual who so generously donated some of their corporeal form to you now that they no longer need it themselves. This ritual can be as simple as lighting a candle to honor them or speaking words of thanks out loud to them and expressing your gratitude. And you can also add a line or a few about welcoming them into your body and to make a vow to take care of your health and your knee so that they know that their gift won't be squandered or taken for granted. You may also want to make an altar or offering to a related deity. Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health, comes to mind. She's the daughter of Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, and her name is where the word hygiene comes from. Though there are many other deities you might incorporate instead, so just find whomever resonates with you. But as with any ritual, and especially with a gratitude ritual... I would think of an offering you can also give in the material realm to go along with it. How can you pay this forward somehow? Perhaps you could consider becoming an organ donor yourself or donate some blood or some time or money to a health center or hospital. Since you hurt your knee while biking, maybe there's a cycling for charity event that you can somehow support if not participate in yourself. The question you want to answer is, what energy is this gift bringing me? And how can I share that gift's energy with others who need it? I've often said that we need to have good magical manners. So giving thanks to spirit for our blessings is essential as far as I'm concerned, no matter what working we are doing. And it also reminds us that despite the pain, hardships, and setbacks this life inevitably brings each of us, it also brings us immense grace, guidance, and love. So thank you for sharing your story with us, Kate, and may your knee grow stronger and your heart grow even bigger in the days to come. Now on to my guest. Susan L. Aberth is the Edith C. Blum Professor of the Art History and Visual Culture Program at Bard College. I first met Susan through our mutual friend and prior Witchwave guest, Jesse Bransford, who recommended that she come lecture at Observatory, the oddball event space I used to co-run here in Brooklyn. And at the beginning of 2010, she did just that and came and gave a talk about the women of Freemasonry, which brought the house down. 
And ever since then, she's been a constant go-to lecturer, writer, and advisor for me in my life, and has become one of my most treasured friends with whom I discuss everything from occult art and witchcraft and fashion and RuPaul's Drag Race and all sorts of dreams and schemes. Now, I try not to ask her too much about Leonora Carrington, which frankly shows a lot of restraint on my part, because Susan is one of the main reasons the wider world knows about Leonora and her magnificent art in the first place. Susan literally wrote the book on her, Leonora Carrington, Surrealism, Alchemy, and Art, which came out in 2004 from Lund Humphreys, and was the accumulation of years and years of scholarship and research and many visits with Leonora in person. Susan has written about Leonora Carrington in countless places, and just out now is The Tarot of Leonora Carrington, available from Fulger Press, which she co-authored with Mexican curator Tede Arc. And so I was very happy to have this podcast and this newly released Carrington deck and book as an excuse to talk with Susan even more extensively about Leonora and her magic. In addition to all of this, Susan has contributed to international exhibitions and catalogs and books, including Surrealism and Magic, forthcoming from the Guggenheim Venice, Not Without My Ghosts, Agnes Pelton, Desert Transcendentalist, Juanita Guccion, Otherware, Surrealism, Occultism, and Politics, In Search of the Marvelous, Leonora Carrington Cuentos Magicos, Unpacking the Marciano Collection, and Leonora Carrington and the International Avant-Garde, as well as to Abraxas International Journal of Esoteric Studies, Black Mirror, and Journalism of Surrealism of the Americas. Susan received her BA from UCLA, her MA from the Institute of Fine Arts, New York University, and her PhD from the Graduate Center, City University of New York. In sum, she is a fucking badass and one of the most inspiring and knowledgeable people I know. Susan joined me from her home in the Hudson Valley via Zoom. Susan Averth, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hello, Pam. Delighted to be here. I am so overjoyed to get to talk to you, Susan. As I've told you before we started, my one anxiety about this is I'm so spoiled that you are one of my dear friends in real life, and I'm so used to talking to you for like six hours about this stuff. So how we're going to limit this to around an hour is beyond me, but we'll do our best. And also, we won't be in our pajamas in front of a fireplace drinking tea. So hopefully that will help. I know that is true. That is true. And I can't wait for us to be able to do that again. Oh, this world we're living in, although we're speaking the day after our election results were just announced. So today is not a day for lamentation. Today is a day for celebration, correct? 
Yes. Fabulous. Well, we have something really special to celebrate in addition to the election, and that is the release of a new project that you have been working on with a number of other magical, brilliant collaborators. And that is this new book and tarot deck, The Tarot of Leonora Carrington, which is out from Fulger. And first of all, I want to congratulate you and just tell you that this looks absolutely exquisite. I was given a sneak peek and I am just so overwhelmed and in awe of what you've accomplished. So big congratulations. How are you feeling about it? I feel wonderful on every level. And I know that's a big statement, but I feel fantastic. Well, I imagine you would be because you have essentially devoted so much of your life, your time, your scholarship to really shining the light on this incredible artist, Leonora Carrington. But for those who do not know of whom we speak, can we just start with some fundamentals? Who was this incredible artist? What was her artwork like? How do you describe her when someone is first learning about Leonora. Leonora Carrington was a true pioneer within the Surrealist movement. And her biography reads as a fantastical tale, but her work was very much influenced by her esoteric philosophies. And what makes her unique is that she mixed them with her sexual politics at a very, very early time. Can you describe some of her artwork? I mean, I think of her artwork as incredibly magical and steeped in occult references and occult practice. So if you were describing her work to someone who's never seen it before, what kind of images might they find and discover? What a fun question. Well, (laughs) Because she grew up as a child during what we know as the golden age of illustration, her paintings often resemble superficially beautiful fairy tales where uh, magical women cavort with animals, there's human-animal hybrids, there are magical rituals taking place, And one of the most delightful characteristics of Carrington's paintings is that they have an Alice in Wonderland sense of wicked humor. And it makes the magical all the more palatable and less serious and more, in a way, heretical because it's fun. I love that. And there is actually a quote that you and your collaborator, Tere Ark, wrote. I'm not sure which of you wrote this exactly, but you write about, quote, Carrington's diabolical strategy of hiding esoteric content in plain sight beneath the mantle of humor. And Susan, I don't know if I can overstate how delighted that makes me. It's the combination of, I use this phrase a lot, reverent irreverence, 
But it's this combination of that wit, that humor, that not taking shit so seriously. And yet, if you scratch under that surface, there's such depth and majesty and magic. Well, thank you for noticing that sentence, because I think in the entire text, it's the sentence I'm the most proud of. Yes. Yay, Pam. And we all know that to be a true infiltrator into patriarchy, one must find costumes, disguises, and secret doors with which to enter enemy territory in order to dismantle it. And this is what Carrington has done from the very beginning. And it's really the reason I was so attracted to her work. You know, when I was doing this project, I had very little support. But I knew in my heart that it was going to be my gift to young women to show them this secret. And I do think it's a secret of the use of humor as a kind of armor, as an invisibility cloak. And it really works. It worked for her and it will work for you. (laughs) I love that so much. I mean, I'm just beaming. I'm beaming so, so brightly right now. So Let's talk a little bit about her biography. I know that her life story alone, I mean, they should be writing operas about this woman, but... Well, there's many wonderful documentaries, but it is my understanding that there are several biopics in the works, and that's very exciting. And let's hope they do her justice, because traditionally, great women are always reduced to the mundanities of their biography. That's my fear, but I'm going to remain positive. (laughs) Excellent. So can you give us just like the big, broad strokes of her life? Yes. She was born in 1917 to nouveau riche parents. Her father was a textile tycoon. And he made a lot of money very quickly. And her mother was of Irish descent. She was in the British tradition, bundled off to numerous boarding schools, where she, and I like to say a quote from her, had an allergy to education. And she was deemed, in fact, ineducatable and was expelled from so many schools. Her parents were in despair. And finally, she came out in the court of Charles V as a debutante. They really hoped to marry her off, but that didn't work, and she went to art school. And as if that wasn't enough, this is where the real story begins. After one year of art school, and she attended the famous Amade Ozenfant Academy in London, At the age of 20, she met 46-year-old Max Ernst at a party. They fell immediately in love. She moved to Paris. Oh, by the way, he was married. (laughs) uh, His very young wife didn't really appreciate this new interest. Long story short, she met all the surrealists who really loved her. They loved her artwork. They loved her writing. And they loved her person. She was delightful, irreverent, 
extraordinarily beautiful in a non-conventional, magical way. She was the embodiment of what they called the femme enfant, the girl child, and also the femme sorcier, the witch woman. Her romantic love story, they moved together to the south of France, to a little village where, unfortunately, their romantic idyll was interrupted by the advent of World War II when Ernst was placed as an enemy German alien in a French camp for prisoners of war. Long story short, her friends came to collect her. They were worried about the war and her mental state of mind. And at some point in their road trip to Lisbon, where a port was departing ships, she had some type of a mental break and was incarcerated against her will in a mental asylum in Santander, Spain. Can I interject for a moment? In addition to being this incredible painter, she was also this unbelievable writer. And her time in that asylum, you can read about in a book of hers called Down Below, which is exquisite and harrowing and so inspirational. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, thank you so much, Pam. And I just want to tell our listeners here that Down Below is historically the first account of a woman's, first person account of a woman's descent into madness. So it's not only incredibly beautiful, it's written as an alchemical parable, but in the history of feminist literature, it, it holds a pivotal place. After some time there where she experienced terrible things, her nanny came to collect her. And on the way home on the train, Leonora managed to, during a brief stop, escape through the restroom of a department store and run away. And she went to the Mexican embassy where a friend of Pablo Picasso named Renato Leduc was working. And he very kindly offered to marry her because otherwise her parents had the legal right to further incarcerate her in a mental institution. And mm. She then went to Lisbon and escaped to New York. She stayed for a year before leaving in 1942 to Mexico with her husband of the time. So how about if I stop there for a moment? Perfect. And this is where things start really getting cooking because I understand she had a lot of interest in the occult and mythology already, correct? But Mexico City was really the cauldron that got her witchy, magical, artistic vibes truly bubbling. She was always interested in witchcraft and things like that. And Max Ernst certainly was, and they had that in common. And she was able to really explore it. And when she was in New York, she met the famous... Kurt Seligman, who wrote The Mirror of Magic. She even was working on a tarot divination system with the great Chilean Mata before she left. But here's what Mexico gave her. It gave her freedom away from the pernicious influence of the male surrealists and their mentality, whether they meant to or not. 
she was free. And also she was in a country where magic never died. It survived the conquest in interesting syncretic ways that were natural to her because due to her Irish heritage, she was used to the mixing of the pagan and the Catholic. Mm. And you have written that she had perhaps some kind of either visionary talents or psychic talents. Can you expand a little on that? Certainly. There are many things I could say, but (laughs) I'm sworn to secrecy. So I'll tell you what I can tell you. According to her relatives in Ireland, she was an actual descendant of the she, the fairy folk. And she believed that. And definitely, I always felt that she had psychic ability. She studied occultism very deeply and profoundly and practiced it her whole life in different forms. Again, I think in a very private way, but you can see through her paintings that it's all there, really. Mm. So mm. I had many interesting telepathic experiences with Carrington. For those of you who don't know, I did know her on and off for around 10 plus years. I was very, very privileged to have that experience. Oh, okay, Susan, that is going to be a little bit of a tantalizing teaser because I have written down here lots of questions about her and your time together. So we will get there, my friend. Before we do, can we place her in Mexico City a little bit deeper? And I know that that's where you eventually would meet her too. So in Mexico City, she also became very good friends with another of my favorite artists, Remedios Varro. And I'd love to hear a little bit about their relationship and how they influenced one another's magic and artwork. Let's pause for a moment and remember that it was Mexico and Mexico alone that offered refugees from World War II citizenship without questions asked. Therefore, it became a really important enclave of emigres from war-torn Europe, both Jewish and Christian. And Leonora would go on to separate from Renato Leduc and Mary Chiki Weiss, who was a Jewish refugee, a photographer. So while she was there, she connected to this emigre surrealist, actually, community. And Benjamin Perre, the surrealist poet, was there with his companion, the Spanish Remedios Varro, who she had met in Paris. They were delighted to be reunited. And they had a true meeting of the minds and the hearts. And I liken their relationship to Picasso Brock because they together pioneered a brand new feminist, magical way of looking at the world that I think was so ahead of their times and will be so influential for the future. I think it's only just beginning to seep into the culture at large. 
Ah, yes. From your lips to the goddess's ears. Absolutely. I think we're just getting started. And we have so much of your scholarship to thank for that. For those of you who love Remedio Savaro, I want you to know that my dear, dear companion and scholarship, the Mexican scholar Tere Arc, the two of us are going to be writing a book on the artistic partnership of Varro and Carrington. We feel that this is a subject that does not get enough attention in the art historical world. And we have already conducted numerous, very important interviews towards this goal. So look forward to that. That's next. Oh, I'm sweating, Susan. I'm sweating with anticipation and excitement. Gonna be good. <laughs> I cannot wait. And to me, it's also such an important thing that you're writing this together because we hear so much about like women as muses for other artists. We so rarely talk about women artists as collaborators, as friends, as part of a paradigm. Like we talk a lot about even like a John Lennon and a Paul McCartney as this alchemical, magical connection. And it's almost always two male collaborators that we celebrate. So the fact that Leonora and Remedios are going to be contextualized in that manner feels very healing and exciting for me too. Dede Ark is really the foremost curator. She did two major retrospectives of Leonora Carrington. I respect her so much. And we talked about this issue and we said, we can't do this alone. We have to do it together because only by working together can we understand the complexities, the challenges, the difficulties of two women working together. It's an unexplored topic. And so far, so good. I have to say, I've really learned a lot. Oh, I adore that. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day -day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. 
Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Plus, they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners, that's you! Get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Clarissa Eck is a potter creating functional, hand-carved, illustrated mugs, planters, and vessels, which call upon animal messengers, ancient plant knowledge, and hermetic symbolism to stir the depths of the spirit. Every piece is thrown on the wheel, then drawn on with a soft pencil and carved into one at a time. Each Clarissa Eck vessel is a spell, a gentle reminder of those in-between moments that make life rich with wonder and mystery. I love Clarissa's pieces because they're designed with ritual in mind. Consider a microwave-safe mug for herbal tea, a potion cup for tinctures, or an altar plate to hold incense and candles. I happen to have candle holders by her, and they are two of my favorite pieces. Find Clarissa's work at Clarissa Eck on Instagram. That's Clarissa E-C-K, or at www.clarissa-eck.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Aberth. Okay, Susan. So we're talking about so many wonderful things. Just to place us in Leonora's timeline, we are now talking about, let's say, is it the 1940s to 1950s that she and Remedios Varro are really hanging out a lot together in Mexico? Is that right? They knew each other from the very first time Leonora landed in 1942. And they were very close friends until Remedios' tragic death in 1963. Mm. So that's a really good period of time there. What was their friendship like? What were they reading? What were they doing together? And do you feel like both of their work became more magical because of their friendship? What a great question, Pam. So this is how I understand it. Leonora told me that Remedios was the most intelligent woman she had ever met. She was so widely read. Remedios read voraciously all the time. And the two of them discussed everything about art. They came from the same surrealist milieu. But more importantly, they had both had Catholic educations. And as I often like to point out, 
Catholicism really is a form of paganism, if we really look at it. And they both had childhoods where saints levitated. It's a Catholic magical mindset. And of course, they rebelled against the incredible misogyny, the political conservatism, and above all, the patriarchal content. However, it opened their mind to the supernatural. And they were very, very astounded by the richness of the Mexican indigenous marketplaces. Now, we are in the 40s. Things are untouched by foreigners. They, in particular, went to something called the witches market, the Sonora market, where herbs were sold. For countless thousands of years, women ran the marketplaces of Mesoamerica, and they explored that. They talked to curanderas, to healers, to brujas, to witches, but really indigenous magical practices were of great interest to them. Remember, a lot of surrealists were socialist, and they aligned themselves with the oppressed, especially in colonized territories. But they also were interested in Western esoteric practices of every kind. And as the famous story is, Varro wrote a letter we know to Gardner. We don't know if he ever got it. We don't know if he wrote back. I doubt it. I just want to say also that in the 50s, and the 60s, there were two really important men who came to Mexico. One was Rodney Collins Smith, who was a follower of Uspensky, and the other was Christopher Fremantle, who was promoting Gurdjieff. And they were both involved with Uspensky and Gurdjieff and with these people and the people associated with them. Yeah, Mexico was a hotbed of occultism. It's so incredible. And I know both Leonora and Remedios were interested in things like theosophy and Freemasonry and Kabbalah, Tarot, I Ching. I mean, when I read the lists of books they each had in their libraries, I get so excited because it's books that I and I imagine many of my listeners have in their libraries too. I mean, these were really intellectually curious women who just read so broadly and were very, you used that word syncretic before, and I think it's such a perfect word to describe their magical approach, right? Because to your point earlier, they were kind of weaving together all of these different influences, including the very context of Mexico City that they were living in too, and the indigenous culture. So... I'm going to just state here very strongly, I feel that this is what women do. And it began really with Blavatsky and Annie Mm -hmm. Passant with Theosophy, which was a movement that mixed cultures, that sought knowledge, esoteric knowledge, in a more democratic fashion from everyone. So these women were following in that kind of feminist tradition, a much more open and inclusive look at spiritual practices divorced from oppressive religious hierarchy. 
Yeah, I think it's important to mention that I think the shadow side of that, which we talk a lot on the podcast about is, you know, cultural appropriation and colonization of land, but also of peoples and ideas. I think the light side of that is that it's about finding commonality and celebrating universality. And it seems to me that that is what Leonora and Remedios were doing, not trying to profit off of or steal from cultures, but rather to celebrate them and then infuse all of this with their own personal stories and feminist ideologies as well. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, I'm really, really delighted that you brought this topic up because one of the things that I respect Carrington and Varro for was that they never, ever took on any kind of superficial appropriation of Mexican culture. By the way, the Mexican people adored them. They were always highly respected in that country, and they are still like revered as goddesses that they are. You will not see trite images, zarapes, or sombreros. And I also would like to say that Carrington tried to help indigenous craftsmen her entire life. At one point, she had a family of weavers move into her garage so that they could weave textiles. And she was always buying folk art, giving it away, highly supportive of indigenous craftspeople. Exactly. And she was also very involved in the feminist movement in Mexico City, too, wasn't she? Absolutely. This was in the 70s, where uh, she was forming consciousness raising groups amongst people to the best, best of her ability. You know, by this time, however, uh, due to certain political realities of Mexico, Following the 1968 Plata Local massacre, she was spending a lot of time in New York City. Her son was in medical school, so she would go back and forth. I think she would have been even more involved had she been there more. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's rewind a little bit because we're back in Mexico City. It's the 40s, 50s. She's hanging out with Remedios. I also loved this that either you or Tede or both wrote. You say that they were surrounded by cats, crystals, and talismans, and they developed a deep friendship centered on art making and magic. So how often were they hanging out, and how did their work become more magical because of this? They saw each other every single day. And yes, and Tere and I have interviewed some of their surviving friends who attested to what they saw often at the homes. And they were very careful. For example, Remedios, both of them would like, they would start paintings at certain astrological times. They would place crystals in certain portions of their studio while they worked. They embedded sigils into their paintings. It just goes on and on, their magical practices. I don't think they told many people. 
And Carrington refused to ever tell me even one single detail. She considered their relationship sacred. And like all people in magical communities, they do not tell what they do. They are not seeking fame for that. They don't want to dilute it. So that part of her relationship is lost to us. And in a way, as much as we would love to know, I think that that's kind of wonderful. Mm, mm. And we'll leave that there. Let's talk about the tarot cards that Leonora Carrington created and the excuse for why I am getting to talk to you today. You and Tede and Leonora Carrington's son have all contributed to this incredible new release from Fulger called The Tarot of Leonora Carrington. This is both a book of essays and brand new scholarship about Leonora and her magical practices and artworks, specifically focused and centered around this deck of major arcana cards that she created. So again, congratulations on this. It is so exquisite. I would love to hear about how this project came to the fore. Well, Tede Ark, while she was curating Leonora Carrington Magical Tales, the beautiful retrospective exhibition in Mexico City at the Museum of Modern Art there, she came across these cards from a collector. And no one had any idea that they existed. We believe that there are other decks and they at some time will be uncovered. Again, people don't give them up lightly. So they became known to us for the first time. We were astounded by them. And we knew immediately that they had to be reproduced and there had to be a book. And we knew that the only person who could really do it justice was the wonderful Robert Ansel from Folger. He's an incredible publisher and designer and book creator. But there was an additional issue, and that was the images, the tarot images had on them gold and silver leaf. And that is, as you probably know, one of the most impossibly difficult things to reproduce. As it is, reproductions of Carrington's works are a disgrace. And it's mm. no one's fault. They're almost impossible to reproduce because of the details. It's just terrible. If anyone could do it, I knew it would be him. Only he could handle it. So we introduced the idea to her son, Gabrielle, and together we worked on this book. There's so much I want to say, but I am compelled to just follow up your shout outs to Robert Ansel with some more of my own. For those listening, if you are interested in art and the occult, 
you have to go to Fulger. You must order their books and incredible reproductions of various decks and oracle decks from different occult artists over the years. Robert Ansel has done so much over decades to not just legitimize the study of art and occult as part of the same spectrum, but he's done it with such exquisite production value and care and mastery. I cannot say enough good things about him. So the fact that he and you and Leonora are all wrapped up in this beautiful project, it is divine. It is absolutely divine. I'm so glad that you agree that Robert is a magician in his own right. I also want to add that in addition to this book, we have created a facsimile reproduction of the tarot cards. So they're in a beautiful box set. And my dear friend, the tarot expert, Rachel Pollack, whom I consulted with extensively on the Carrington deck, wrote a wonderful introduction to the tarot. and. It's wonderful because it's simultaneously scholarly and amusing, exactly how Leonora would have liked it to be. So I thought that it was the perfect introduction to the cards. How fabulous. And listeners are very familiar with Rachel as she was on the show last season. And without divulging too much, I will just say it is by far one of the most popular episodes ever. She is so beloved. And yes, the stars have just truly aligned to make sure that Leonora's cards and her incredible scholarship and talents and gifts have found the right people to usher them into the next generation. So big bravo to all of you. Thank you. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm a big believer in stars aligning. And that is why when a product is both exquisitely made and is beautiful and has deep magic and is created by wonderful people, it makes me so freaking happy. And for those of you who've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know that I swoon about Mithras candles. I mean, people will literally contact me or come up to me and talk to me, not just about the podcast, but about these Mithras candle ads, because <laughs> it is so obvious that I am deeply in love with this company. I love Ben and Sochi who create these candles by hand in Philadelphia. And I freaking love these candles. What can I say? I can't get enough of them. They are 100% pure East Coast beeswax. They have a gorgeous Byzantine drip style and a scent like Apian Paradise. And I kid you not, as I'm talking about these candles, my cat Monday just came over and sat on my lap where he's purring up a storm. Um, I think he can sense that I'm just like given the best vibes out right now talking about these candles because they truly make me happy. Here's Monday purring right now. Mm. 
Now, because I love the folks at Mithras and because I love these candles, it has been so wonderful to see this business expand over the years. And Mithras candles now come in both natural gold and their gorgeous new black line made with a plant-based dye. Mithras candles are ancestral lighting for your body, mind, and spirit. And um, guys, I don't even know what else to say. They're the freaking best. I give these candles as gifts. I gift them to myself. They are truly, truly special. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in Monday, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. And use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com. Offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. I promise if you get these candles, you're going to be purring too. I am obsessed with Zoo's incense, which is why I am so excited to announce that I have partnered with them on an exclusive Witch Wave incense blend just for you. The Witch Wave blend is inspired by Artemis, goddess of the moon, the hunt, the wild. It contains sandalwood, orris root, myrrh, black storax, mugwort, ambret seed tincture, and organic ylang-ylang essential oil. And I cannot tell you how fun and magical it was to collaborate with the folks from zoos and come up with this blend for you. You can order your Witch Wave incense blend by going to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop, and you'll see it there. And this is a small batch, limited edition, so we'll see how long it lasts. I also want to encourage you to go to Zeus's site and order their incense from them directly because they are so incredible. They have nine incense blends currently available and they are handmade and hand rolled, all natural, and all of their ingredients are organic or wild crafted and made with whole plants, seeds, roots, woods, tree resins, and tinctures. Zeus also offers hand cast, concrete burners, charcoal, raw aromatics like frankincense and myrrh, and incense supplies. Check it all out at zoosincense.com. And if you use promo code WITCHWAVE, you'll get 10% off. So that's right. You've got two places to go. One is witchwavepodcast.com slash shop to get our exclusive Artemis-inspired Witchwave incense blend. And you can get everything else over at zoosincense.com. That's Z-O-U-Z incense.com. And use offer code witchwave for 10% off everything else. Thank you, Zoos. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Aberth. So, Susan, we were talking about the production of this new release of Leonora Carrington's tarot deck, her major arcana deck, and the accompanying book that you worked on with many other bright stars. 
I would love to hear more about the process for you of bringing this project into fruition. What did you learn that may have surprised you? And why do you think it is so important that people get to learn more about Leonora and her relationship with the tarot in general? As you know, I've been studying Leonora on and off, I would say, for about a minimum of 25 years. And yet, when I embarked upon this project, even I did not realize how profoundly her entire oeuvre was influenced by the tarot, beginning from childhood drawings done when she was 13, through the famous portrait she did of Max Ernst early on in their relationship, and then throughout her entire artistic career. And I'm not talking just about her paintings, but I'm also talking about her short stories, her plays, and almost every aspect of her creative production. That was a big surprise to me. Mm. So I learned a lot. Wonderful. I'll just bring up something that I was really struck by. You wrote about, for example, the card, The Hanged Man, and how this was a card that was very, very resonant for her and which shows up certainly in her own deck, but also there's references to it and visual allusions to it in her paintings and otherwise. So can you talk a little bit about just doing that kind of piecing together of the symbols through her own kind of visual timeline, if you will? Yes. What I noticed was the dominant card that really ran throughout all of her work was the hanged man. And given the extraordinary and traumatic circumstances of her life, expulsions from school, war-torn Europe, leaving Europe forever, living in a foreign land her whole life, and many, many other tragic things that happened to her, one can understand on a superficial level, the meaning of the hanged man. But it's a tricky card, as we all know. It has many deep esoteric meanings that transcend what we normally think. And I have to say, Rachel really helped me to understand the multivalent nature of the hanged man. Another card that was very important to her, of course, was the magician. And also, interestingly enough, the chariot. We would think the high priestess would be the most important, and it does play a role. But really, it's the hanged man that's the most important. And the hanged man, you know, I always think of that card as the card of suspension. I mean, to the novice, I think it feels like this really violent card, but actually... It's this state of like receptivity and liminality and just kind of like being neither here nor there, right? Do you think that's that's a good assessment or all places at once? <laughs> well, I think, Pam, as is your usual want, you hit the nail on the head and you use the key word liminality because really Carrington is the master of liminality. 
where her paintings give us this entree into the true magical world, which is unformed and being created at all times by the practitioner. So I think that the hangman had that magical meaning for her, actually, and probably much more. Beautiful. Well, I cannot recommend this book and this deck more highly. I mean, I am very tempted to make you kind of almost like go through every card with us because there's so much depth and your analysis of the different colors that she uses, which is very unique to her, the different symbols that she incorporates while being, you know, if not deferential to prior decks, certainly alluding to them and learning from them, but then making them entirely her own. But I won't make you do all that, Susan. I will just say, everybody, please go read this because you and Tede do a masterful analysis of what makes this deck so special and how she really truly does infuse it with her own artistic magic. It's quite astounding and inspiring. Speaking of that, Susan, I'm just wondering, do you think Leonora considered herself to be a witch? Do you think she really thought of art as a magical practice in a literal sense? Yes, I do. And I'm very close friends with a woman named Gloria Ornstein, who was one of the first brilliant scholars to bring Leonora to attention in the 1970s as part of the feminist reclamation of women artists. And Gloria has told me many stories about Leonora and their friendship and just my own friendship with Leonora. A funny story is I asked her to do a book for 10 years. And she would literally slam the door in my face and say, I hate art as historians. I didn't take it personally. I hate them too. So I didn't really <laughs> care. But I persevered because I really wanted her work to be known to women. And eventually I found myself at her home in Mexico City and when I met her, I was wearing two things that she seemed to like. One was a dress that looked a lot like a sack. I called it my acolyte look. And it was a nice dress. <laughs> it was like a flax long, like initiate's robe. And I was wearing, and I don't know why I did this, a pentagram. And she looked me in the face. She said, do you know what that means? And I remember saying, looking her right in the face and saying, yes, Leonora, I know what that means. And she paused for a while. And then she said, are you a feminist? And I said, how dare you ask me that question? Would I be sitting here if I wasn't? That kind of sealed the deal. And she liked me. After that, because I think a lot of annoying people were coming to her house and wanting to do this and that. I don't blame her for being really cautious. Absolutely. And what a fabulous story. And I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in her shoes. When was it that you first met her? I first met her at her New York gallery 
called Brewster Gallery. It doesn't exist anymore. It was on 57th Street in Manhattan. At the time, I was working across the street. I was writing a catalog resume of Egon Schiele. Could anything be more different than Carrington? (laughs) And I just happened to walk by and saw the paintings. I was really drawn to it. I went in. And then over the course of a number of years, whenever she came to her openings, I sat with her and mostly we smoked cigarettes in the stairwell. Oh, I love that. What time period was this exactly again? Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe it was the early 90s. Right on. Yeah, I knew her a long time before the book. Yeah. So the reason I am asking is because what I started to say earlier is I'm trying to imagine myself in her shoes as someone who has so much magic and scholarship, esoteric scholarship that is infused in my work and having so many historians miss that or you know, maybe give like a passing gesture towards it without really knowing the material. And so for you to finally come along, who is not only a historian, but someone who has deep occult knowledge yourself, for that pentagram and that accolades robe to be kind of these little secret passwords to let her know that you are in the club, so to speak, that you would be the right steward for her work because you could speak her language, you know? So I just adore that story, Susan. And is that how you first discovered her work was just seeing them randomly in a gallery? I mean, what made you decide to devote so much of your own scholarship to bringing her work to light? I've been interested in the esoteric my entire life, but the art historical world was not very open to that. And they weren't too open to me doing my PhD on Leonora Carrington either. So I was studying other things, and because I knew a decent amount about esoteric things, when I saw a painting by Leonora, and I have no recall whatsoever of what it was, Mm -hmm. it spoke to me magically. I had an intense communion with the work of art. I understood immediately what it was. I understood immediately it communicated to me that this would be my life work. I accepted my mission and I knew like seriously, like that day that that would be my dissertation. The people in the gallery were very accommodating and very nice. And Leonora's treatment of me was absolutely in keeping with what I expected. It's an initiatory process I had to go through many hoops as well I should have. So I had no resentment whatsoever. And I just methodically proceeded step by step. You have to leave your ego at the door. It's not about you. And she was very sensitive to when people were using her mm-hmm. and resisted it. And I appreciate that. Ah, oh, I love that, Susan. What was she like? I mean, it sounds like she was fiery or 
if not fiery, spiky. Maybe that's a better word for her. Can you talk a little about what it was like to spend time with her and in her presence? Knowing Leonora would change anyone's life. And she was the most magical person I've ever met. And like all great magical women, she looked like a librarian. She wore sensible shoes and gray and beige outfits and her hair in a bun. But the things that came out of her mouth were very interesting. Let's just say that. So again, this idea of the disguise, you know, no trappings of the exotic, nothing vulgar whatsoever, but wicked. She was wickedly funny. She was so funny that I would fall on the floor laughing. I couldn't even move. She was hilarious. I mean, (laughs) but you had to be really smart to get the humor. I love that. Did she ever read your monograph on her? Like, did she read anything that you wrote about her? And how did she feel about it? When I was all done, I had to sit on a little stool I felt like I was in some kind of French school for naughty girls. It was an uncomfortable stool. And I had to read it to her out loud. And she was in a corner by her big, scary stove. And she listened to it all. This is in Mexico City? In Mexico City, in her little dining room, in her wonderful house on Calle Chihuahua, which is, by the way, a museum now beautiful house. When I was all done, she just looked at me and said, you're the first person who understood what I'm doing. And you're very intelligent. And that was it. So (laughs) those were great things. Don't get me wrong. I was really happy. She was not one for effusive compliments, but I was really happy. That had to feel great. Yeah, so I felt like I had done her right. And we selected everything together, all the paintings. And we worked very carefully on everything. How phenomenal. Well, I want to zoom out a little bit because I know that you've experienced so much resistance to your scholarship early on. And it seems like only within the past, I'll say maybe... 10 years, major institutions have started to really focus on and affirm the study of esoterica as being valid and deeply influential on so many of our most important art movements and art makers. So I wanted to just hear a little bit from you you know, you work in academia, you work very closely with major museums and Sotheby's and all these incredible institutions now. Why do you think that shift has happened? And what has that shift been like to experience from your perspective? I don't think I'm prepared or smart enough to answer that question in all the ways that it needs to be answered. But I think it's a combination of things. And believe it or not, I think a really important book was Whitney Chadwick's book, Women Artists and the Surrealist Movement, because the 
revitalization of surrealist scholarship, which so supported the esoteric, that alone, and the women involved with it who were even more involved with the esoteric than male surrealists, I think that began at least an academic inroad into a kind of reassessment. And the recent, I would say, explosion of interest in the esoteric is so refreshing and so phenomenal. And I also think so much a reflection of kind of latter-day feminist thought and also the continued move away from canonical religion especially with our ideas about colonialism and other things. I think it's all an organic move. And I do think it started in the 19th century, actually, by women, mediums, Blavatsky, theosophy. It began with women, and it is going to continue with women as we, again, throw off the shackles of patriarchy. And I sound like an old-fashioned feminist, and that is awesome to me. There's nothing more I would rather sound like. And, you know, I'm of that age. So, awesome. Susan, fuck yes. That's right. Exactly. That's the stuff right there. And I'm so happy that you mentioned Whitney Chadwick's book, because that is the book that unlocked this door for me. I first encountered it when I was a teenager. And that is where I first saw Remedios Varro's work and Leonora's work. And it's a huge, huge key to a door in my life that needed to be open. And so just much gratitude to her. And I love that you're really drawing parallels between the rise of women in powerful positions in scholarship and major institutions with the legitimization of, you know, magical thought and intuition and spirituality and all of these things, because there's so much we could say about it. But to me, it all does seem of a piece that it's also getting away from just like straight empiricism and materialism, too. Would you say that's fair to say? Yes. And the only world I really know is maybe the art world. And it has been very dominated by a kind of male-centric critical theory. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have value. Of course, it's extremely important. But it's not the only way and it's not the only thing. And we have ignored so many other trends. So for example, The Los Angeles County Art Museum had this wonderful exhibition, The Spiritual in Art, that also in art historical terms really opened the door. And yet they had no women artists. I think it was the first time Hilma of Klint was shown. Right. This was in the late 80s, right, Susan? I forgot the exact date, but I think you're right. Anyway, we always saw the advent of abstraction as a purely male-dominated thing with Malevich and Kandinsky, of course, et cetera. But now we know recently that actually abstraction was pioneered by women artists. And I'm really, as a scholar, that's what I've been working on the most as of late, is the work of 
women involved in the New Age movement, like Agnes Pelton, which is a really great show that was just at the Whitney, and other shows. There's another show in England, Not Without My Ghosts, that also deals with spiritualism and abstraction, and women, a lot of women artists. How fabulous. While we're winding down, I just wanted to give you an opportunity for any final words. I mean, the question that's coming to my mind is like, what do you think Leonora's legacy is? And how do you think she would feel about not only the interest in occult work and her work, but also the release of her tarot deck and her most kind of intimate esoteric work. What do you think she would make of all this? I think she would be delighted by the greater appreciation of her work. And you remember she's an Aries and modesty was never her virtue. She knew she was a great artist. And I I really love that about her. No false modesty. She knew she was a fantastic artist. She knew she was important. She knew people should see her work. And I think she'd be very happy. Here's what she would really not be happy about. And I can't state this strongly enough as a warning to women everywhere. When I agreed to do the book, she told me that I was not permitted at any point to ask her about her personal life, in particular, her romantic life, because women are always reduced to their sexual life, who they sleep with, what they're doing, if they're pretty. Beauty for her was something she couldn't care less about. And this is what I worry about in future biography pictures, etc., that they're just going to cast her as this beautiful, crazy artist, and she would be very upset by that. And I'm going to just end again with the astrological sign of Aries. She was the personification of that sign that she was political. She fought for justice every minute of her life, whether it was with Octavio Paz, Andre Breton, or the butcher down the street. It didn't matter to her. She stuck up for human rights, not just women's rights, but animal rights, the rights of nature. She was in her fiber. Her magic was based in politics. And I think that that is something we miss in her work is the political aspect. Mm. Such an important note to end on, one that's very, very relevant, I think, given the current conversation around politics and the ongoing conversation that we have on this podcast around magic and staying devoted to justice and compassion for all beings. So thank you so much for that reminder. And I like to imagine that Leonore is very happy that you've just reminded us of that too. Susan Aberth. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show, for your trailblazing, your scholarship, your brilliance, and most of all, your friendship. I am so honored to know you, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to share yourself with us today. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Pam. And it takes one to know one. Dear soul sister, I love you. I love you back. Bye. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Susan Aberth for her bewitching brilliance and her fabulous friendship. 
Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Then drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a huge difference because it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.